This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we journey through the 6th and 7th centuries examining the early monastic movements. What did they contribute to Christian history and development? What was left undone? Absolutely. We got some presentations. Well, pretty much all these episodes through Session 5, except for the very first and the very end. We're going to have some presentations, some timelines we've created to help you walk your way through. Remember, accuracy is not what we're going for with those timelines, but just the ability to see the larger picture there. So just note that's there when you get time and you're able. Check those out. All right, so this mostly Gentile Christian empire finishes their councils that we looked at in the last episode, and Rome falls. The Roman Empire shifts from an imperial political state to what some would call the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and uh, an, an imperial religious state. <laughs> I'm adding the world imperial to that. Some people would say, like, we went from a political, imperial political state to a holy Roman empire, a religious state. And I'm going to say an imperial religious state. There's that Christendom we talked about before. Brent. The bishops were essentially civic leaders. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. To be sure, all these labels are unfair to use since the ancient world knew nothing about the separation of church and state. To insinuate that the Roman Empire of the Caesars was not a religious world would be ludicrous. We've looked at that. The world of the Roman Caesars was very, very much religious. It was very pagan. So they're not doing anything they're not used to. However, I do hope that the uh, listener understands our point. Uh, We shift from emperors to popes, from Rome to Christendom. This newly established kingdom, often referred to as the Byzantine Empire, played its role in history and growth of Christianity. It indeed had some bright, shining moments. It wasn't all dark and horrible and bad, but none of this could cover up some of its most darkest problems of this era. Toward the beginning of uh, Byzantine history, there was a leader named Justinian that expanded their rule to the largest extent in history. This chapter is full of dark stories of Christian uh, faith combined with the empire's sword. People were forced to affirm holy creeds and Christian doctrines. If they did not, they were offered the opportunity to convert. If they refused, they were persecuted, sanctioned, or even executed. Christianity's anti-Semitic history continued in this era, and there were corners, sometimes very large corners of the empire, where we would beat or kill Jews who did not affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. How things change when you find yourself at the handle end of the sword. Story has changed pretty radically, Brent, from being at the pointy end of the sword to where you're holding the handle. We could, and maybe we should, go on and on about this nature, this aspect of church history, but that uh, statement will serve to sum up the darker chapters of this history for now. There were also some important developments in the Christian faith, sometimes connected and sometimes disconnected from the imperial efforts of the Byzantines. And again, disconnected in a very loose sense of the term in that the whole, the whole church was, I mean, we're talking Christendom, the, the kingdom of religion. Right. Absolutely. And so some things were very much enacted from an imperial effort and some things were enacted, maybe, maybe more top down, bottom up would be more appropriate language, but it was all kind of a part of the same thing that was growing. 
So again, since we had cut the Christian faith away from our Jewish heritage, we lost contact with a faith, most importantly, a practice. Notice that use of that term, a practice that had defined God's people for centuries and centuries. Having spent over a century perfecting our doctrine and theology, something Gentiles have been very, very concerned with throughout our history, uh, and focusing on orthodoxy, which means what, Brent? What does orthodoxy mean? The rightness of your beliefs. Right, right, right belief. We now, we had been focusing on orthodoxy, but we now, just out of necessity, uh, Christians needed to focus and ask questions about orthopraxy, which means what? The rightness of your practice. The right practice. So we've been thinking about right belief so much for centuries. We now need to think about right practice. Since Gentile Christians did not believe in following Torah, uh, we were obviously set free from those mixat ma'aseha Torah. The Gentile doesn't eat kosher or wear tassels or they don't have the 613. Uh, we were missing, uh, these, this Christian movement was missing the playbook on what it meant to walk the path of faith. In fact, uh, Augustine or Augustine, depending on, we were having that conversation the other day, Brent, Drives me crazy. Constantine, yeah. but I Augustine, I feel yeah. like, is the more common. Yeah. And people definitely have different opinions, but I'm going to go with Augustine. Uh, Augustine had written a, a, a horrible edict commanding the African Christians not to even entertain Jewish relationships. How, how, how does that sound like session one, Brent? Does that sound like Abram being hospitable to the outsider. Yeah, a little bit backwards. A little bit backwards. Sound like Matthew and the Gospel of the Mumser. Right, right, yeah. I, don't know. I feel like we've screwed something up here. But Augustine, this wonderful Augustine, father of the Christian faith, uh, wrote this horrible edict commanding African Christians to not even entertain Jewish relationships. He penned a seven-point document that forbade doing business with Jews, lighting candles for Sabbath, uh, in addition, he commanded the, uh, that, that everybody would consume ham on Easter. So if you've ever wondered why everybody eats ham on Easter, you thank Augustine and Gentile Christian history. It's actually an anti-Semitic move <laughs> to make a statement uh, so painful about Judaism. Because I would thank him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would thank him very much. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it is in this setting, this setting that we've been talking about, that the monastic movements shine. Now, to be sure, these monastic movements started long before just this moment in history. They didn't start here. They started very, very early, well, way back before, you know, even in the days of Constantine, you have a very strong monastic movement happening. But it's, it's in this setting that they really find their golden moment. Um, while many flippantly critique the monastic movements as being secluded and isolated, Kind of sounds like the uh, conversation we had about which group, Brent? The Essenes. The Essenes, and it had a lot of similarities. Uh, we actually owe much of what, just like we owed the Essenes uh, for a lot of good in our history, we owe much of what is good in our Christian faith to the faithfulness of the monastic movements. They were committed to trying to preserve the physical text just very much like the Essenes were. Uh, they became people of service. They continued the work of what we would call hospitals or clinics, even though maybe they didn't create the hospital. They kept that work going, maybe now under a, 
a less pagan name in the work and, and the name of Jesus. Uh, they were devoted to their faith. Uh, when, we, when we needed to know what it meant to create space, or create, creating space episode in session one, we talked about spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices. I'll tell you where we get that knowledge from. How do we know how to do that? We know how to do that from the monastics, from from monks of long, long ago. They were experts in creating space for God in this new world. These movements uh, helped many spiritually blind folks see. Uh, they were experts in prayer and discipline, corporate spiritual practices and service. Because they struggled from isolationism, great thinkers like Gregory of Nyssa and Basil the Great, taught some very important things about the idea of community. As history turned the corner into the 7th century, Gregory the Great, who would become the Pope at that time, came along and became what some have referred to as the father of medieval spirituality. It's a pretty cool term, the father of medieval spirituality. Gregory brought the world of Christendom uh, its first large-scale taste of liturgy. What do you mean with liturgy, Brent? What does that mean? The order of the church. Yeah, church order. Yeah. How do we how do we worship the orthopraxy? How do we live it out? There's the worship, but then what do we do? How do we do it? How do we do worship? That's liturgy, church order. Kind of a Roman idea, really. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. One born out of necessity, but uh, very much Western and, and Greek. It, it, they needed to give shape to something that they didn't have structure for. So, so he, he did things. He created liturgy through things like uh, Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool uh, uh, music. Uh, I had to study Gregorian chant when I was uh, getting my music theory degree. Um, uh, a public uh, corporate practice of worship kind of begun because of the work of, I mean, we already had corporate worship, but really it took on, it took on a new shape. Uh, liturgy, as we refer to it, came out of this whole period of history. Many elements of what we can still uh, see in Catholic Mass today. You, you said you had a Catholic, more Catholic upbringing. So a lot of the things that you probably experienced at Catholic Mass, some of those things started with Gregory the Great. Especially because uh, the, the particular church that I was in for some time uh, did a fair amount in Latin. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there, there's always ways to look at history through uh, either overly rosy lenses, or you can look at history through overly critical lenses. You can do one or the other. It's important to note the things that this era brought us. That's important. We need to note the positives. Unfortunately, this period of history did very, very little to undo the imperial abuses of Christian freedom. In fact, quite to the contrary, they only systematized the chronic power struggle that had and would ruin the trajectory of our Christian story. So the same church order also systematized some of the corruption, some of the problems, some of the things that we were already struggling with. It gave an infrastructure, it gave efficiency, it gave a system to some of those chronic abuses. However, the next century, and by the way, none of these comments have to do with Catholicism as a whole. At this point in history, there's only one thing. It's just Catholicism. Christianity and Catholicism are the same thing. I am not in session five trying to throw all this shade at Catholicism. That's, I have a deep, deep, deep appreciation for Catholicism. Um, my Catholic brothers and sisters have taught me unbelievable things about my faith. So that I know a lot of Protestants do that. That is not what I'm doing. So if you think I'm doing that or you're hearing that, um, 
don't and stop it because that's not what I'm doing. Not my thing. Okay. Excellent. Uh, however, the next century would be spent uh, learning to create space for a God that we maybe, maybe largely misunderstood. Uh, I'm a firm believer that this allowed God to continue to work through the story of Christianity. We said in session one that if we create space, what, Brent? God will fill it. God will fill it. And and did I say that there was a bunch of prerequisites to that? Not that I recall. Not that, not that we recall. <laughs> um, there was no like... Uh, uh, we have to do it the right way or we have to have our understanding of God completely perfect before it will work? No. No. See, because this period of history created space, I believe God was able to fill it uh, in spite of itself. As God told the Hebrews in the Tanakh more than once, there is always a remnant of God's people, always a remnant. There will always be a group of people who are trying to follow the creator to the absolute best of their ability with all their heart and all their soul and all their might. Because of that, be them Jews, be them Christians or pagans, God will always be looking for what, Brent? Partners. Always be looking for partners. But we will continue to have a hard time getting along, and it won't be long before we find more problems in our history to argue about. And that will lead us into the next chapter of Session 5. This is kind of a somewhat encouraging moment, though, with this monastic movement. It is. And you can look at it lots of different ways. I'm sure some people look at it and be like, oh man, but it was actually all this other stuff. And that's true too. But there is a, you can hold the gem of history in such a way that you see a really positive glimmer of, okay, all is not lost. Yeah. And again, the vastness of the world is is still very much a reality. And there's different stuff going on in different parts of the world for sure. Absolutely. But, but and yeah, there can, is some hope here. Yes, you can never sum up the human experience and just, oh, those councils, how we jacked up Christianity with the councils in our last episode. It's not that simple. The world's much bigger than that, and there's much more going on, and there's good stories happening everywhere. What you look for, you will find, and that's true in church history. All right, that'll do it for today's episode. If you have any questions about the show or want to get in touch with us, go to com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.